We're good? We're on. We're live. Good. Hey, good to see you. Good to be seen. I'll mention a couple of announcements that I'll actually speak about further at the end of the service, but just so you stay tuned uh, when we're done with the message, why stay tuned for some announcements. You've got the image up. You can see that work has continued to proceed here on the building. Uh, we had a new driveway installed this week, and we'll talk more about that coming up. Um, also, the lyrics on that second-to-last hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Guys, that's a that's an entirely Christian perspective, and whether it's the loss of someone near and dear to us or it's the challenge of isolation that we face today, Christians uniquely are able to say it as well with my soul. I want to thank again Tad and Larry and Dan, today's tech team, for making this streaming possible. With that, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into the, the message. Father, we willfully, thoughtfully humble ourselves before you. We acknowledge that you are God, that, Lord, anything and everything that we need comes from you, is intimately connected with you, and that it is in relationship with you through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we not only come into the possession of eternal life, but that every good thing we could ever think of, dream of, hope for, is met for us in Christ and your rich provision for us in him. Lord, our hopes are on you in time and for eternity. We ask that as we gather together around your word this morning, that you'd speak words of life to us, draw us more fully into your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I'm going to read from a quote. This is fairly well known. If you look for this online, you'll see it lots of different places. This is from former President Theodore slash Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, this is a guy who lived what he preached in this pithy, memorable uh, little point that he called in the arena. He wrote this, It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or whether the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, we might say in the race of life whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Of course, Roosevelt there giving an invitation to life bigger than our own backyards, sort of an invitation out of a life of safety for safety's sake, but rather a life willing to expend itself in attempts and worthy causes. And the challenge for that and us is this, the, the arena is a risky place to live. The race of life is a risky place to live. Because if I make a mistake and I'm in the arena of life, uh, you'll see my mistake. If I try something and it doesn't work out, it fails, you'll see my failure. And the truth is, I open myself up for accusation or rejection based on my arena living. 
And in our honest moments, we know that living for the approval or in the fear of other people is inadequate. It's a lousy way to live. And yet that's our temptation. Roosevelt's quote is inviting us out of that small, small life. I admire, I appreciate people like Roosevelt, who certainly lived a larger-than-life lifetime, who are willing to do what he invites us to do, to live in the arena, to enter the race of life, and give it our all, come what may. We're in the 54th message this morning in the Heroes and Villains series, and you remember that the theme of this series is that heroism is really, heroism is in the kindness of Christ's kind of faithfulness, Christ-like faithfulness. Heroes don't always get it right, but they're characterized by Christ-like faithfulness. Villains on the flip side are faithless to their God and their maker. We're looking this morning at a character from the Bible who lived in the arena like Roosevelt invited us to. He made mistakes. He made lots of mistakes. In fact, he's probably more often cited for his glaring mistakes than for his successes. But nevertheless, he is characterized by his faithfulness. He is certainly one of the heroes of faith. Because he's routinely referred to for his miscues and his failures, I want to be careful when we talk about him in those realms that I'm not coming across in a way that sort of looks down on him. I certainly consider him my better. And I'm talking, of course, about the Apostle Peter. We'll put Peter in the timeline, the place chronologically where he lived. And if you have a study sheet... You've got that at home. You can see that that chronology, that timeline has been updated. So Peter's life, you can see there would be in the same ministry years as Jesus, about 29 to 33 AD. And then our best understanding is that Peter lives to about 64 AD when he's executed by the Roman emperor Nero. So that timeline also shows you the major emperor's alive during that time frame. You'll see Caesar Augustus' name isn't on there, but he's there during Jesus' birth and early years. Caesar's Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. The timeline lists five Caesars who I don't name because there's not room. They, li they lived and served as emperors very briefly. The main point we want to take away this morning is this, and this is, this is major. Don't let past failures keep you from future faithfulness. Don't let past failures keep you from future faithfulness. I think this may be one of the, the greatest assessment or tools of our grasp of forgiveness in Christ, whether we can put our own past failures behind us and get back into the race of life, into arena living after we've blown it. And maybe after we've blown it severely or after we've blown it again, and again and again. If we don't grasp forgiveness, then we'll never get this. And so that's an important part of the lesson as well. But we want to make sure past failures don't keep us from future faithfulness. Friends, this is the deal with Peter. He is a wonderfully flawed, but still a hero of faith. His faith was resilient. It was strong enough to rebound after his own failures. We're going to look at Pete's life in three different phases. First, just who is this guy that Jesus calls to be his key apostle? Not just a, a disciple generally, but his key apostle. We're going to look at Peter's blunders, I hope, sort of kindly, sympathetically, and then we'll also look at Peter's faithfulness, and especially in the ways Jesus called him to be his apostle and his follower. Remember that Peter's role was determined by Jesus. Jesus knew all of Peter's future failures, and he called him as his key apostle and leader Anyway, that's an important lesson to remember as well.
So we're going to start with who was this guy named Pete, Peter? I want to look at John 1, verse 40 to 42 to start that out. This is when Peter meets Jesus for the first time. One of the two who heard John the Baptist calling Jesus the Lamb of God was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So Andrew first found his own brother Simon, and he said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him, his brother Peter, to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You're Simon, the son of John? You shall be called Cephas. Now, this is important for a couple of reasons. This is Jesus' first introduction to Simon, who he calls Peter. When he changes Peter's name, he is saying he has authority to claim Peter as his own. Right from the get, Jesus says to Simon, you're mine. I'm giving you a new name because I have authority over you. You're going to be my man from here out. His name, Simon, or you'd say today in Israel, Shimon, originally Simeon, means to be heard. And then Jesus says, and depending on the translations, it varies a little bit, but Jesus gives him an Aramaic name, Cephas, some would pronounce Cephas, or Kepha, which means in Aramaic, a stone or a rock. So when we read Peter, Peter's the Greek for that same thought, a stone or a rock. So Jesus meets Peter, he says, you're mine, and you're a rock. That's my new identity for you. You see this uh, kind of introduction again in Matthew 4. If you're reading Matthew apart from John, you don't know that Jesus has already met Simon. But in Matthew 4, verse 18 to 20, it says this, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw, Jesus saw, two brothers, Simon, called Peter, Andrew his brother. They're casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. He says to them, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Matthew 8, 14 tells us that Jesus entered Simon Peter's house in Capernaum, where his mother-in-law was lying sick. So we know here... Uh, Peter is married, he has a wife, he probably has children, and his mother-in-law is living with him as well. This would have been fairly typical family arrangement in those days. And last, just on the front end of who is Simon, the guy Jesus names Peter, Acts 4.13, the Jewish rulers in Jerusalem arrest Peter and John, and after they verbally interacted with them, they conclude this, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. So I just want to put this stuff together so we have some sense of who and what Peter was. Peter was a common blue-collar worker. He didn't have a formal education in the way of most Jewish leaders. He was married. He probably had children, was raising a family. We would say, in other words, Pete was a regular Joe. He was like a carpenter or a plumber or an electrician today. He was working hard to pay the bills and raise his family. And this was the man Jesus chose to be one of his disciples and not only that, but his key apostle. So on the front end, if I look at my life and I see the voids, the recesses, the things that aren't there, I'm in pretty good company. Because the guy Jesus left behind him to be the key leader in the early church is this common Joe. Pete is an average Joe. And he's just like any one of us. If we look at our own lives and we say, I'm not all that, I'm not that smart, I'm not that capable, I'm not that able, then I'd say we're in good company because that's exactly the kind of person Simon Peter was. Listen to this too, just closing this section out. There's a tendency for all of us to look at who we are and what we bring to the plate in determining how God might use us, but that is in fact not the way God works. Now Paul, the Apostle Paul, 
he was a PhD. He was an academics academic. I mean, in Jewish studies, he was a, the tip of the top. Couldn't get more academic or more learned than Paul was. But listen to what Paul wrote from 1 Corinthians 1. Paul wrote, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise. You weren't the smartest. You weren't the academics, according to the standards of the world. You weren't powerful. You guys weren't socially connected. You weren't military leaders. You weren't of noble birth. You weren't connected to the best families. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So if we look at our lives and we say we, we resemble Peter, uh, not in strength, but in weakness, not in capability and ability, but in what we don't have, then we'd say we're probably exactly the kind of person God's looking to use. So Peter, Pete was an average Joe. Now I want to look at Peter's blunders and, I, and his sins, his failures. I want to do so, I hope, kindly, because the truth is all of us are like Peter. We all blow it. James says we all sin in many ways, and certainly that's true of all of us just like Peter. From his interactions in the Gospels, we know Peter was impetuous, he was overconfident, and he was loyal to a fault. And you see those elements of his life coming to bear in his failures. Those qualities and the fact that Pete, like us, was, remember, a sinner in need of a Savior means his, his blunders, his sins, his failing the mark. They were not only numerous, they were significant. The first one I want to point out is Matthew 16. The contrast here, the irony is thick if you read the whole passage. But Jesus was with the disciples and he asked them, hey guys, who do you, who do you say that I am? And so they say, well, there's a number of options. And, and he says, okay, but, but you for yourselves, not just the general public, who do you say that I am? And Pete says, well, you're the Christ. We'll look at this in a little bit. But having said that, Jesus goes on to tell his disciples this. He said, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer many things by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to be raised on the third day. Now, Pete, who's just heard from God the Father that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, listen to what it says about Peter here. Peter took Jesus, God the Son on earth, aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turns to Peter, the one who just confessed he is the Messiah, and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here is Peter's loyalty. It's misplaced, but he's loyal to Jesus. He doesn't want anything bad to happen to Jesus. And so the guy that's just been informed by God the Father, by the Spirit, said, You're the Christ, now has been informed by Satan to have this thought that Jesus, who came to the earth to die for sinners, shouldn't in fact do that. You got, he comes from the height, he goes to the low. Matthew 26 has several of these, these situations where Peter falls short of the mark again. This is on the night of Jesus' betrayal. Matthew 26, 33. Remember at the Last Supper, Jesus has spent it with the disciples there in the upper room. And, and Jesus told the disciples there, quoting Zechariah, he said, tonight, God the Father is going to strike the shepherd, and you, the sheep, I'm the shepherd, Jesus says, you, the sheep, you're going to be scattered. You're going to forsake me tonight, Jesus says. 
And in the context, again, of Jesus telling Peter what's going to happen, Peter says, again, I think out of the sense of loyalty, he wants to be there for the Lord. He said, though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Jesus says, told him what will happen. Peter says, no, Lord, you have it wrong. I am all that. I'm capable. I love you. I'm loyal. I'm going to be there for you. He won't be, of course. In verse 40, so the guy that's willing to die for Jesus can't stay awake with Jesus. They go up onto the Mount of Olives. They're praying. Jesus goes ahead. He says, hey, guys, pray with me. Pray for me. Comes back an hour later, and Pete, who's willing to lay his life down for Jesus, Pete can't stay awake. Jesus says, couldn't you watch with me for one hour? Just shows, reflects the weakness of Peter's flesh. You get to verses 69 through 75 in Matthew 26. This is the most, fail, uh, most famous of Peter's failures. It's painful. I, I think the challenge for Peter, this would have been the key challenge perhaps in his life to forgive himself. But you remember Jesus said, Pete, you'll deny me three times. And, and Peter's just saying, he's having none of it. It's like, no, I'm with you. I'm for you. And you know, in the heat of the night, when he's with the disciples and the Lord, it's good. Even in the, the scuffle uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is arrested, Peter's willing to pull out a sword. No way he could win. But in the heat of the moment, he's willing to. But as the cool of the night settles in, and Peter's just in the courtyard of Ananias, the high priest, you know, and these individuals are questioning him, aren't you one of his? You know, and three times Pete says, no, I'm not. One gospel says, no, he curses and says, I don't know that man. Luke's gospel tells us on that last denial, Jesus somehow from inside the house looks and sees Peter in the courtyard. Their eyes meet. It would just have been a devastating, devastating moment and failure for Peter. Sometimes uh, commentators point out that these failures in Peter's life occurred before Pentecost, before the Holy Spirit came down and imbued the new Christians with power. And that's true on one hand, but this last failure along Peter's line I want to mention is actually well after the Holy Spirit has come on Pentecost. There's an occasion Paul recorded, not Peter, in Galatians 2. And Peter, the key apostle to the Jews primarily, had come to Antioch. And while he was there, this Gentile city, primarily a Gentile church, he's eating with the Gentiles. He's like one of them, which was good. That was appropriate. But listen to what Paul says. When Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Before certain men came from James, Jesus' half-brother in Jerusalem, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself he feared the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas, Barnabas the encourager, uh, was led astray by their hypocrisy. And remember, the early church had lots of trouble figuring out who's on first. What's, what's our relationship to the law of Moses? How do Gentiles interact with us? How do we interact with them? And so Jews still living in the land of promise, they were still keeping the law, even those who believed in Jesus. So when Peter was with Gentiles and those guys who said, no, Gentiles should be circumcised also, Peter drew back. And so Peter was doing one of the worst things possible in that day. He was compromising the clarity of the gospel. 
that it was faith in Christ plus nothing that brought about salvation, and that Jews and Gentiles were now together, equal brothers in the common family God had brought them all into. So Peter failed. He didn't just fail before Pentecost. He failed after Pentecost with this fearfulness of what others would think of him or perhaps do to him as well. So we look at Pete's life kindly, sympathetically, and we say, Peter failed. He sinned. He erred. He fell short of the mark. He failed repeatedly and in many ways. Some people might have looked at Peter's life and said, Pete's really a failure. All of those failures might have led us or someone like us to simply throw in the towel and give up the race of life or say arena living is simply not for me. Peter didn't do that. I want to pause because we want to apply this to ourselves, of course, or the lessons are no good. If I just pause and I look at my life and I say, what's the worst thing I've done? Do a quick review of my life and I look back. Maybe for me, it'd be those cringeworthy moments. I look back and I've done omission, commission. I've done it. I didn't do it. Those things in life where I would look back and I would just cringe Sometimes unbelievable what I did, what I said, what I didn't do, what I didn't say. On those cringeworthy moments, when we look back at our hall, personal hall of shame, have we taken those things to God? Have we confessed them as sin and failure? And have we received forgiveness? That's all important. Those areas in our life where we've blown it, where we've failed, and we all do. Have we taken those to the Lord and have we received forgiveness? We need to. In fact, we're called to confess our sins. God will forgive us. Now, this becomes the thing. When we confess those sins to God and the blood of Christ, we know covers all of our sin. Our fellowship is restored. Think of this. If God forgives us, who are we to languish in our sin and our failure? If God says we are in right standing with him, that he holds nothing against us. If God says we're forgiven, there's nothing between him and us, then who are we to hold that past failure, that past sin against ourselves? We would be placing ourselves above God to do so. We aren't at liberty to deny the Lord our lives and energies, even and perhaps especially after failures. We remember that we're not just sons and daughters of God, but we're stewards of our time, our energy, the gifts and callings God has on our life. So that when we sin and blow it, we acknowledge that to God, we receive forgiveness, and we get back up into arena living. We get back up into the race of life. Or we're acting as if Christ hasn't died for our sins. Failures don't excuse us from service. And sometimes it's the humility, it's the lessons we learn from our failures and the understanding of our need for God's grace that makes us most fit to serve in the future. Uh, Chris had a lesson on desert living, sort of the Exodus lessons. And certainly one of those is that, guys, we can't do anything in our own strength. And failure reminds us of that. And when we sin and when we err and we do, it reminds us we're not all that. We're not capable. It's got to be God's grace at work through us or God's work doesn't get done. But it's incumbent on us to get back into the race, to the arena living. To be faithful requires that we not only confess our sins and failures, but having confessed and been forgiven, it's our responsibility to forgive ourselves, to get over getting over our failure, 
and to get back into the race God's called us to, the gifts and callings, the responsibilities he's given to us. If nothing else, Peter is proof that God uses us knowing all our past and all our future failures too. And that's significant. You know, you ask people today, how many of your sins were future tense when Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Well, they were all future. How many of Peter's failures did Jesus know and did God the Father know when they chose Peter to be their key leader? They knew all of his future failures. They chose him anyway. Their failures, Peter's failures, didn't define how God was going to use him. Our failures shouldn't define that for us either. We often think of Pete in that sense of his failures. They're out there, they're glaring because he lived in the arena. But we want to remember a couple of things uh, bigger than that in his life. And the first is that Jesus chose Peter. And then the second is that Peter really was characterized by faithfulness. But think that Jesus chose Peter knowing all his future failures and put some of that in perspective. Peter's listed first among the apostles in every gospel list. Every time, Peter is always the first one listed. Peter is in the trio of the apostles that Jesus would single out for particular miracles. So it was Peter, James, and John. Like Thomas and the other apostles, Peter's name is on the eternal city, the new Jerusalem. Peter was chosen by Jesus to be the key messenger of the gospel after the resurrection. This is from Matthew 16, 18. And by the way, this is a passage that Roman Catholics make too much of. Protestants probably make too little of. Jesus told Peter there, based on his confession of Jesus as Messiah, I tell you, you're Peter, you're a rock, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And the sense of the keys of the kingdom, what you do see occurring for Peter from Peter in the book of Acts is that it is Peter who uses the keys of the kingdom to unlock the new covenant, the gospel, first to the Jews, then to the Samaritans, and then to the Gentiles. So it's Peter's preaching in Acts 2 by which the Jews receive the gospel and the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. It's Peter and John who go up to the Samaritans who have already believed in Jesus but haven't received the Spirit. It's only when Peter prays for them that the Holy Spirit comes down and they receive the gift of the Spirit in the New Covenant. And then, of course, it's Peter again in Acts 10 at the house of Cornelius in which the Gentiles receive not only the gospel but the Spirit as well. Peter it was who unlocked those doors, if you will, of the gospel to each of these people groups. Jesus said what occurred in Matthew 28. Remember Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the Gentiles, the rest of the world. This is significant, too. It was, it was Peter Jesus commissioned to help the other disciples after Jesus' crucifixion. In Luke twenty-two thirty-two, Jesus has said to the disciples, he said, Satan has demanded to sift you. And when he said sift you, he meant it was plural. All the disciples would be sifted that night. But Jesus singularly said to Peter, I have prayed for you, singular, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, you're going to fall out, but you're going to return. When you've turned again, you go and strengthen your brothers. That's only said to Peter. Everybody's going to fail. That's, that's a given. But Pete, you need to be first to come back and encourage your brothers. Luke 24, 34, Jesus appeared apparently to Simon Peter on his own the day of the resurrection. The gospel of Mark is understood to be 
John Mark's retelling of Peter's gospel account. And of course, Peter wrote two of the New Testament epistles, First and Second Peter. So we need to remember in assessing Peter or other people in our own day, Jesus chose him for that ministry. We shouldn't be quick to pass judgment on those chosen by Christ who are in fact brothers and sisters in the faith. And though he had notable failures, Peter's life was characterized by faithfulness. You know, his loyalty and sort of this impetuous nature tended to lead him to speak first probably and think later, but he's also very quick to repent, which I love. Your study sheet has a couple of these references. Luke 5, verses 4 through 8 was, For me as a new believer, one of the key passages God used to speak to my own heart about serving him. Jesus had spoken to crowds from Peter's boat, and apparently Peter simply was not tuning in. So Jesus said, hey, put out into the water and we'll, we'll fish. And, and Pete condescendingly says, well, Lord, we're fishermen. We fished all night. We caught nothing. But to please you, I'll do it. Well, they have such a catch of fish in the net, Peter's heart is pierced, and he gets, this is who I'm in front of. I, I don't have all that. This is God's Messiah. And he says, he kneels down in the boat, and he says, depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. So quick, quick to err, but also quick to repent and just say, I am not all that. In Matthew 26, 75, after he denied Jesus three times, the text says he went out and he wept bitterly. These weren't crocodile tears. This wasn't like Judas who betrayed Jesus. Peter had true repentance and remorse, and he wept. He felt the burden of that failure. He wept in real sorrow. Uh, quick to repent. We need to be as well. The other thing is Peter was first to confess Christ, and this is significant. I mentioned Matthew 16 earlier. When Jesus asked his disciples, First, who do people, who do, who do the crowds say I am? And so they said, well, one thing and another, Jeremiah or the prophet, one thing or another. But when Jesus said to them specifically, who do you, this group, his disciples, who do you say that I am? It was Peter that spoke up. It was Peter that said, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God, Peter. And Jesus tells him, my father has shown that to you. That, that wasn't coincidence. It was God the Father giving that to Peter first. You see the same thing in John 6 when so many of Jesus' disciples forsook him and Jesus asked the disciples again, would you like to leave? Also, he said things that were hard for them to understand. It's Peter again who says, Lord, to whom would we go? You have words of eternal life. We believe, we know you're the Holy One of God. Peter is the spokesman for the group. He's the first to stand up and say, Jesus, we know who you are. Peter was also first to speak at Pentecost, and this is, this is where I think the rubber meets the road. This is less than two months after Peter has denied Jesus three times, unspectacularly failing in the arena, in the race of life. Less than two months later, on Pentecost, when the Spirit comes, and someone needs to go out in the streets and tell the crowds what that noise is all about and why these people are speaking all these languages. And it's Peter, again, who's the spokesman for Christ and Christ's new church. It's he that speaks up, and 3,000 believe on that first day. Some of the qualities that led to Peter's failures were also the traits that made him so useful. And you'll find this for yourself as well. 
Generally, Peter wasn't afraid to speak up. Think of these situations where he confesses Christ for the group. The flip side of that is he was often quick to say things that he shouldn't have said. His deep and fierce loyalty led him to assume too much of himself because he really was loyal. He wanted to be there for Jesus, but the loyalty itself couldn't provide the courage and the stamina to be there for Jesus in the ways he wanted to. And so when you think about Peter and you think about great failures and the race of life and arena living, and you apply that to yourself, how, how are we doing like Peter, at not only facing our failures, but moving beyond them. So, so faith and faithfulness become the norm, no matter what those failures have been. Have we allowed past sins to define us? To define us, sin shouldn't define us. Are we willing to acknowledge our failures, confess them as needed, and then offer ourselves to the Lord again for any of the ways he might choose to use us? Peter, <laughs> Peter is a great reminder that the faithful often aren't, that the faithful often aren't faithful, that our life may be punctuated by failure, but failure needn't keep us from being faithful again and again and again. Every time we fail, we confess, we get back up, we get back in the arena, back in the race of life. Peter reminds us that faithfulness requires that we not lean too heavily on our own strengths, but that we lean on Christ and his provision. That may be one of the biggest lessons I take away from Peter. Peter demonstrates that God doesn't choose us to serve him with our gifts and callings because we'll always get it right, but because his grace, his power, think back to 1 Corinthians 1, is demonstrated in using wonderfully flawed people like Peter and like you and like me for his purposes. So whatever arenas of life God's placed us in, let's make sure we're striving for Christ-like faithfulness in those spheres of influence, failures notwithstanding, till we see Christ face to face. James says we all sin in many ways. Sin and failure is a given. We confess our sins. We receive forgiveness and restoration. God holds nothing back, nothing against us. It's incumbent on us to get back into the arena back into the race of life. With that, let me pray. Lord, we acknowledge that we have a tendency to think too highly of ourselves, that we're quick to say yes when we should pause or wait or pray, Lord, that sometimes we are slow to respond to your Spirit's leading. Lord, that in omission or commission, in acting or not acting, Lord, we often get things wrong. Help us to be quick, as Peter was, Lord, to repent, to confess those failures to you, to receive forgiveness and restoration of that relationship, and then, Lord, the stamina, the willingness, the faithfulness to get back into the race of life and to serve you as effectively and faithfully as we can. Lord, we pray, too, for our friends at Voice of the Martyrs, that you'd strengthen them, and, and Lord, also provide the people the materials, the finances they need to continue to support Christians who are persecuted around the world. They've been at it a long time. We pray you'd sustain them in that. Or we pray for the Bider family in their recent loss, that they'd feel upheld by you, and also by brothers and sisters in the family of faith. Uh, Lord, help us to serve you well and joyfully and willfully all the days you give us life on this earth. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Guys, I want to mention some announcements, too, before we wind down. Uh, first, just want to mention that there is work continuing on at the church building. Uh, trim has been installed. The driveway, as I said, has been installed. It's lovely to see that old broken concrete gone. The new installed. There's some finished painting and some decoration going on. Uh, we've still got to come some plumbing, floor installation, of course, some other trim details. The audio video is on hold. I just mentioned if you've made pledges to the building fund, we hope if you're able, you'll continue to put those in. Uh, if you've already given your pledge but can give additionally, we still, I believe, are about 10000 short on finishing the project. Because we're delayed on a number of fixtures for our electrical system lighting, Mark thinks we'll probably won't be able to finish the job entirely until the end of May. But we would like, if, if at all possible, for the finances not to be the thing that holds us up. So if you can help with that, we pray you will. Uh, how soon will we start meeting again at Lion and Lamb? We sent out a Breeze email last night. The elders have met and chatted about this, prayed about this, and we will continue to, of course. It's our hope to meet again here face-to-face -face in our building May 10th. Uh, the governor has a mandate out that churches not meet in person through May 3rd. You may be aware that's been challenged in court. A federal judge in Wichita last night uh, put that mandate from the governor on hold, but only for the two churches that filed the lawsuit. Uh, my suspicion is the governor will be found to have exceeded her authority and power, and it certainly appears she's done so not only constitutionally, but I think against biblical mandate as well. But we'll monitor that, and we'll let you know how, how that comes. We will tell you that we know many of you won't be comfortable. You either have marginal health or you interact with people with marginal health and you won't want to come to a face-to-face -face service initially. And that's just fine. We're, we're planning to continue to stream these services at least for a few months. We may do this indefinitely, but you won't be on hold because you can't come or think you shouldn't come to a face-to-face -face service. While we're here, especially initially, we'll still practice distancing and and we'll have hand wash and all that stuff for us uh, here as well. But my suspicion is we will be slowly, only slowly, phasing back in to a regular sense of church life. By the way, along that line, I hope the separation uh, has been effective in helping us see things, perhaps in ways we didn't before. Uh, Do you ever feel like a Sunday morning, I think, oh, maybe I'll go to church or maybe I won't. And you say now, you know what, it'd be a privilege to be able to get up in the morning and go gather with the saints and worship face-to-face -face and together. Or I miss seeing my brothers and sisters in a small group or Sunday morning. I hope it's made our hearts grow fonder towards each other. So we'll keep you posted, but tentatively May 10th back here. How are we doing at keeping up with each other, taking care of each other? I hope we're praying for each other. Some of those small groups continue to meet by Zoom or other means. That's great. But hopefully all of us are aware of each other and needs and doing all we can to be faithful just to build each other up in the faith. So we're planning on being here the next two weeks by streaming, so we'll see you here again. And we'll give you communication as that's deemed helpful by Breeze. If Lion and Lamb is your church home and you don't get those notices by email or text, why well, you need to go to the church website, email us at the contact point there. Give us your name, your email address, your phone, so we can get you by text and your address, and we'll include you in that for next time. So with that, God bless, keep us, help us to be faithful till Christ comes, and may it be soon. Amen.